Hi, and welcome to the East German Fashion History Podcast. Today we will be discussing 60s fashion in the GDR, and it's going to be a little different. I'm going to start off with a general overview of the 60s and the trends that prevailed, and we're going to do a deep dive into Zbilla. Now, don't forget to catch us on Friday for Got a Hot Minute, where this week's Weekend Read Reco, I'll be talking about Zbilla, um, the magazine for fashion and culture, 1956 to 1960. It's really a beautiful publication. Unfortunately, it's all in German, but the images are great, and it explores the entire world of Zbilla. So, to start us off, in the 60s, Saxony was booming uh, with the textile industry that really was a source of national pride. The majority of what was produced, however, went to the east, went to the west. What was available in the east was pretty meager, and the contrast of what fashion designers wanted and the availability was quite drastic. While high-quality fabrics were hard to come by because of issues with foreign exchange and importing, there was a lot of investment on developing new fabrics, often copied from the West, as Ulrike Zuchi, who, Zuchi, who we talked about in last week's episode, she was the textile engineer from um, who was in her 20s during the 60s um, with a husband and child and worked a lot in the industry had said um, she had attested that our quality or the East German quality was generally better. For example, Lycra was amazing. Um, there was practically no difference between Bayer and DuPont, but most of it would be exported, and what was left over would go to the Handelsorganisation. Now, this is the national retail businesses owned by the Democratic Women's League of Germany. So that was really, those textiles would be handed over to the, the HO, the HO, and then that would be produced into models and samples. In terms of trends and inspiration, it's not like we were, she says, it's not like we were completely sealed off. We had French and Italian films, and we had, we had access to newspapers for job-related purposes, of course. Um, we often had to adapt all the international trends for our inland, for our inland collection, and clients like Neckermann and Quelle knew exactly what they wanted, and a lot of that would also be reworked for the domestic business. In terms of textile and fashion trends, <clears throat> Um, Schick in Der DDA remarks that they were usually young, everything felt younger, colorful, liberal, and more free-spirited with bold colors and patterns and less rules about, you know, long, what's long, short, tight, or wide. A lot more was tolerated from officials, um, but except for specific West status symbols, which were heavily frowned upon. Those being specifically jeans and parkas, which were dubbed the derogatory term amikuten or American battle jackets. And ami is just like a general term still used today in, in Germany to describe like an American. So generally, um, whatever you, but generally whatever you couldn't find in store, you had to sew yourself. 
and I found a couple personal accounts from Chic India Dadia, which I thought was great. And these really translated a lot of the fashion trends of the GDR. And to be mindful with my research, I'm really trying to outline what fashion magazines are saying at the time, what was happening historically within the retail industry, and also these little snippets are really helpful because this is what the everyday person was wearing and reacting to. So our first account is Zabine C. from Brambach, and she had remarked that everyone in the 60s wore mini skirts so short that they just seemed like wide belts, and every kind of floral motif out of synthetic fabric with plastic shoes or PVC shoes in all colors. Anna R. R. from Halle Zahl uh, said that, you know, we made a lot of our own jewelry from shells we'd find while vacationing on the Baltic Sea, as well as using paper clips for necklaces. Fashion magazines would often have articles about how to make your own necklace out of wooden corks and beads. And she had also she also remarks that she once painted painted her mother a pasta shell necklace for for a, a, a holiday in Germany. It was called Women's Day or Frauentag. Anna E. from Afwat mentions the trend or item that she really loved most was her dark blue NATO plan yaka. So it's a NATO dash plane jacket. I think it's a type of military jacket. And she got this from her aunt from the West. And I can imagine that this was definitely not allowed, definitely something that was frowned upon, but it was a huge trend and would be seen everywhere. In fact, Ingrid from Chemnitz says that the NATO, the NATO plan Yaka was the absolute fashion trend. If you had an aunt or grandmother in the West, you would have them send it to you. And she says she doesn't really know why it was trendy because it was just a raincoat. Well, what made this raincoat so trendy? Elke H. from Neubrandburg um, remarks that tights were an absolute rarity and quite expensive but they were definitely a very cov- a coveted item. And that's a, that's a trend or that's a theme we'll be seeing a lot of where a lot of these Western items have, they carry almost this like fetishist, fetishistic fascination to them because of their lack of availability. And they're, you know, a lot of these would sometimes be sold at the, on the black and the gray markets. Now, some of the other popular household styles that you would find um, in a typical GDR home would be uh, definitely there was a specific type of apron and it was colorfully printed and made out of dederon which as we we discussed last week was the gdr's version of their own specific synthetic fabric and it was rebranded as dederon because it sounds like ddr or gdr and this was of course uh this was also you know big in the west but specifically in the east because of you know it was made out of dederon and it was the silhouette was more like a shirt dress that you could wear with it was made with or without arms or pockets and i i actually checked etsy to see if you could find it and i found one for about i think 30 euro i think i'm definitely going to get it. it it but it just looks like a plain apron but this is definitely something you would find everywhere and 
even um I mean my my grandmother was is West was West German and she also had um an apron a shirt dress like apron but I don't think it was anything to this effect made out of dederon in these specific patterns so it, it, there's a specific symbolism specifically to that type of apron another popular style was a cocktail apron and this one is a little more chic i love it i'm still on the hunt for it um, it features a neck loop a cinched waist a flared skirt and then a, an applique of like a chicken design on the left pocket and i found the there's the pattern which i'll post to the blog if you want to be daring and make your own gdr style cocktail apron now before i delve into the timeline i'd like to start off with a quote which really encapsulates what party officials were trying to echo sentiments of in the 60s, 60s since there was a, a growing complaint of the lack of availability for a lot of styles and pieces and clothes. So, quote, long or short, skirt or pants, our publicly owned textile industry proves inexhaustible possibilities in clothing. Everything is allowed as long as it's good enough. There are also many versatile styles of clothing for many different characters. Everyone is looking for what suits them. So just keep that in mind um, for this episode as well as the following. So we're going to start in 1961, which is a huge year, as we all know. And we're going to begin in February where there are plans to outline three existing stores as luxury boutiques in Unter den Linden, which is a specific area in Berlin, in the city of Berlin. And these were supposed to be specialty stores for valuable textiles with, quote, only the most valuable articles predominantly from imports and outspoken top quality products. So like the store Zabilla that we talked about last week, uh, this was supposed to be a store that you could find in Berlin, you could find it in Leipzig, and a lot of other cities. And it was considered to be definitely more elevated and focusing on party members and the intelligentsia that could afford these higher price point items. This would be their go-to luxury store, like their maybe like a, a boutique, like or, or like a smaller Bergdorf's. Um, but anyway, um, and they wanted to have a sort of give it a French inspiration. So a lot of these different, these exquisite, exquisite stores would have names like Yvonne, Jeannette, Chic, Pinguin, Cavalier, Piccolo, Charmant, and Madeleine. And by March, they the, the Politburo had a resolution to provide an entire network of these stores. And now we're going to skip to August, August 13th of 1961. The East German government builds a, bar, a barbed wire and concrete, what they call an anti-fascistische Schutzwall or an anti-fascist bulwark between East and West Berlin, what we would call today the Berlin Wall. 
The intent was to keep Western, quote, fascists from entering East Germany and undermining the socialist state. But it primarily served the objective of stemming um, mass defections from East to West. A couple episodes before, I'd mentioned a quote from a Walter Ulbricht, who was a deputy, deputy minister, that he was really concerned about the gross level of consumerism that that was happening in the West. Specifically, a lot of East Germans were going to the West to buy a lot of their products. And I think this was something that definitely uh, contrib- contributed to this and to their economy and to the, the reason why they built this wall, among other reasons. Just for some reference, between 1949 and 1961, some 2.5 million East Germans fled from East to West Germany, most through West Berlin. By August of 1961, an average of 2,000 East Germans were crossing into the West every day. Now, I did some research into this. Um, I love a lot of literature. And one of my favorite writers is Gunther Grass. He's a Nobel, uh, Nobel, Nobel Prize winning writer um, in Germany. And for his 1999 book, My Century, which he got the Nobel Prize for, he has a section where he talks about this mass exodus, or he talks about 1961 and what that was like. And this is, a, this is a novel, so a lot of his characters were made up. But he touches on this, and he touches on people really trying to flee in mass amounts. And as a part of this exodus, people would obviously create passports and fake official stamps by using everything from hard-boiled eggs to sharpened matchsticks. So the demand or the, the sense of urgency was pretty high. I don't know if the hard-boiled eggs or sharpened matchsticks to be used as official stamps to exiting is true, but I would imagine so. Also, that book is available everywhere. I would highly recommend it to sort of understand the everything about German history from 1900 to 1999. So it's, it's really great. With the wall in place, this definitely helped boost exquisite stores. Um, and by September of 1961, fall, winter, there is a new call by party officials for a price, for a price increase of specific products that were to be called hochmodisch or highly fashionable. And this went into effect three weeks after the Berlin Wall and allowed pricing and surcharges of apparel that was deemed luxury to, um, to be increased and to have more luxury items available for this new country now with a, a wall, with the Berlin Wall. And of course, this caused a huge uproar. First of all, factories, which it was now said that all factories were producing luxury goods. That was in 1962. But back in 1961, um, there were a lot of factories that had to start producing luxury goods, which is a paradox because not everyone can produce luxuries. It really considered luxury at that point. Um, had not known about these surcharges and audits by local officials that went through to these factories 
had no, had noticed that a lot of the people managing them were completely uninformed of these surcharges. So that really meant that the quality for a luxury piece had the same quality, something that didn't have a luxury piece. And again, this is something we mentioned last week where price doesn't necessarily equal quality when it came to these terms. In this year, you also had, aside from that, in this year, you also had them the party official started it was called consument and it was a mail order catalog which was created for rural populations to order clothes and other such items and goods so they're really trying to broaden their availability hence you know because of all these new political changes now when the wall went up um there was really no political resist particular political resistance from zabilla Zabilla's August issue, naturally. And this is also where you start to see a change in the editorial, on the editorial side and on the content side of what they're, the stories that they're telling and how they want to tell them. It's less focused on the West and what they've seen in Paris. Um, Dorothea Bertram joins as a writer and becomes very critical of Vogue and Elle and considers the designs kitschy and and senseless modernism in a cultural political struggle. At the same time, and I think it's the same Dorothea, which I'll specify in the blog, but a Dorothea Meles is asked to analyze uh, the fashion publication at this time, she's a student at the Berliner Weissensee Art College. And the newly appointed editor-in-chief of Zibylle, Margot Fanstiel, who was an economics journalist, but also, but now had moved into f- as a fashion editor, had hires or asks to meet with Melis, and she asks her to help and change the voice and the face of Zabilla, make it more contemporary and move it out of its past. Now, at the time, you had this idea of criticizing West Western fashion publications was was sort of seen all over. Um, Hungary had its own counterpart to Zabilla, and I'm going to try to pronounce the name, but I'm going to botch it up as a Zanayak. And they had considered, I love this quote, um, they had just generally considered the, the new look to be tasteless and an anachronistic calling, calling it to the calling it the class struggle dress. So back to Doro, we'll call her Doro for short. Doro Malice's graduate collection secures her a position at Sibylla, um, and that collection was dedicated to des- or designed around young women. And she says that, according to Mellis, this was her analysis of what was wrong with Sibylla. She says, quote, Zabilla's orientation toward haute couture proved to be pointless. Nobody needed haute couture in the first place but it became even more useless at the beginning of the 1960s. My ideal woman was employed. She was highly intelligent, natural, and free-spirited. Mago Fanstiel, who was the economics journalist by procession but held a post of Sibylla's editor-in-chief at the time, called me for a meeting in October of 1961. I clearly expressed my thoughts why change was needed. 
Funchtil said to me, well, I expect you to put your clothes, your ideas into practice. So it took me a year to build up my team of young photographers, graphic designers, and stylists. I was also a stylist on fashion shoots that Sibylla was producing. My idol was the French photographer Peta Knapp, and my Bible was French L. So while she's gaining her inspiration, or all her inspiration is based off of French L, her her position is she's an East she's an East German fashion student. So it's interesting how she really appropriates West you know West German fashion and fashion press for an East German eye. In her first editorial for the magazine, she features three groups of women. She features bohemian artists, romantic girls in ruffles, and the young industrial, young industrial and professional workers. Now, why she while she favored naturally groups one and two as a part of her collection she, of having a fashionable sensibility, she really wanted to focus on group three, the young industrial professional workers for giving them more of a fashionable savoir-faire, or giving them more of an edge, which I think is really interesting in the idea to make fashion more egalitarian and also more proletarian and fit in terms of the, you know, the GDR vision at its core. In this editorial, she notes that every woman should have the following, a sporty raincoat, a suit, a pleated skirt, a straight sport coat, a pullover, blouse, and a festive dress, all in classic cuts of good fabric, flannel, silk, cotton, and tweed. Funny that she notes this because those are all non-synthetics. So in, in this for this editorial, Doro asks her friend Anu Fischer, is a teacher friend and mentor to photograph at at Berliner Weissensee to to photograph um, all of to photograph this collection and also she recruits a lot of her fellow students and colleagues at, colleagues at her store at her school which helps with the entire redesign and for the editorial Arno Fisher and also Roger Mellis produce grainy images full of movement. And this is really where we start to see a change in East German fashion photography, which formerly was all set in these, you know, palatial by these palatial museums and palaces. And you now you really start to see that being replaced with the urban streetscape. And that also changes the look of Sibylla. So she recruits all of her friends um, to really help with the magazine and really doing a total overhaul, redesigning the layout, copywriting, graphic design, and photography. And to, just to give you a little history on to what this magazine, what the Weissensee School was. So the Weissensee is a historic art college founded um, in 1947 by former Bauhauslers who were at the Bauhaus, Amart Stam and Bocias van Beck. Despite all the restriction, despite all the restrictions and filtered influences from the SED or the Sozialistische Einheitspartei, the school still uh, boasts a very Bauhausian, a Bauhausian spirit. So fun fact for all you Bauhaus fans, 
Check out the names Mart Stam, Borges van Beck, and the, the Weissense Art College. In Doro's introduction to Sibylla about fashion photography and the magazine, she comments that they were really looking to revolutionize the fashion image. They didn't even consider themselves fashion or taste or image makers. They considered each or rather fashion designers. They saw themselves as the way it was translated was mold designers, but as industrial designers. So this is going to take on a completely different look because the ethos of what they are is, is not what you would find in West fashion magazines. Also, a lot of their influence is still, and a lot of this transformation from Zabilla is, you know, coming from a place where they were, you know, before, when they were in school, before the wall came up, they still had a lot of exposure to, you know, art films in Italy and France. They had friends at the Charlottenberg School, which was in West Germany. So they, they're taking all of these influences from the West and French L and really incorporating that into a more modern look that has less of a bourgeoisie element to it than you would find in maybe a West German or a West European magazine. And she comments that this magazine really wasn't supposed to be about skirt lengths and collar types. And you'll find that kind of look and that kind of writing still in the 50s and 60s of a lot of American fashion magazines, but that's not what this is about. This was supposed to encompass art, architecture, painting, literature, and fashion as, as a central component, as sort of a uniform thing. Arno Fisher really worked hard to transform these more doll-like feminine women, you know, like an Audrey Hepburn, although they wouldn't have an Audrey Hepburn there, but an Audrey Hepburn, to someone who was more confident, self-aware, and independent. Gunther Rössler, he was another major cont contributing photographer, said you could really identify with his photos because, you know, his models were natural. They were athletic, charming, and confident. It was a new kind of woman which he created, and it was less about fashion. The working woman or the werktätige Frau that we talked about last week really came into her own in the 60s and especially um, exemplified through Fisher and Rustler's lifestyle photography. And it was towards the end of the 60s, which we'll get to next week, that Roger Mellis's, Roger Mellis comes into play and he has more of a cool and distant element of fashion photography. And he uses that style up until the 90s, which I will also post those images to the blog. So their credo was naturalism. They favored honesty and a cool reality against the dramatic flair and artful hair, costumey makeup, and exaggerated poses. So no akimbo poses. Models were usually students, uh, and they were working women found in cafes. They would get 15 to 20 marks per shot. And there was really, in this, there was really a symbiotic relationship between fashion photography and portrait photography, and that was a constant theme throughout the decade. So, 1962. Now, remember when we spoke about the official line of the GDR? 
Well, while, while widely promoted and marketed on TV, it was rarely available. And there were a lot of growing complaints as to where this line was and what was it supposed to reflect. So keep that in mind. Because in spring of 1962, it was advertised that this line was supposed to present a new fashion line. Um, and that ended quietly and abruptly without any information in terms of what happened to it. As a way of possibly explaining this, because of the, the growing complaints about a lot of these inspirations on display and their, they, they not being available, that really might have helped perpet why the, the fashion line of the GDR just mysteriously disappeared. And it was further said that when we talked about the VEB, I also mentioned it in the blog post, um, you had the VEB mode truck or fashion print and the, in Neues Deutschland, which was a East German magazine, they comically referred to the VEB mode truck or fashion print as the VEB fehldruck or misprint. Now, this all fell in line in uh, 1962 when the exquisite stores officially open and they are to impress a coveted exclusivity of hochmodisch or highly fashionable goods. But as we mentioned with factories, it was really hard to get something to be highly fashionable because of surprise surcharges and the lack of communication on that part. The broadening of its market began in late summer of the year. While exclusivity was its goal, this new customer base was still to include, you know, quote, young girls with low incomes as well as citizens with average incomes. In January of 1962, there were 31 stores um, for each district for men's and women's. And some of the general issues with the exquisite stores were um, access to goods that met high standards and imports from capitalist countries, but that they also had to rely on a lot of manufacturers and not just a small selective amount. And it was estimated in 1962 that 90% of all goods at exquisite stores were imported. Now, um, Deputy Minister Fritz uh, Rectangle or Re Rectangle Fritz Rectangle uh, said that, quote, during the last years, the wish was voiced in broad parts of the population to open special stores or fashion salons in which extraordinary, in which extraordinary and needs for extravagant and the exquisite are satisfied. That following December in 1962, Inner shop opened, and this sold high-quality items that were either Eastrum and exports that were re-imported, liquor, cigarettes, uh, appliances, even car accessories. And they also had an earned hard currency for Western tourists to go in, and when they could trade, they they could trade in their West German marks. So all the while. 
Western clothing continues to have an almost fetishistic element to it because of its rarity and purchasing it was rather clandestine. You would either, you had a grandmother or an aunt or a relative in the, in the West, or there were certain, especially like the black and gray markets of the immediate post-war years continued to thrive and some of these some of these west german clothing items were even sold in state-owned shops in fact it was estimated that in the 60s 20 to 30 percent of all clothing on the east german market was actually west german you also had because of a scarcity and because of an inconsistency of a of a of a supply demand of goods you had a lot of hoarding, and that's something that that was known widespread. Is a lot of there was a lot of impulse buying, and a lot of that was partially because of scarcity, and that was about forty percent of East Germans were known to, to impulse buy because of scarcity. So that was that was another issue. Now, in that same year. You had a lot of, well, there was a lot of this highly coveted, this highly coveted fascination with West German clothing. The reverse was the Soviet Union tried to highlight desired pieces from throughout the East Bloc. So in one of its department stores, they had featured an accessory shop called Leipzig. And Leipzig was to sell underwear and intimates known from the city of, of Leipzig. So it's an in, interesting in terms of the, this weird collateral effect you see happening between the East German fascination with West German clothing and these coveted pieces and then the Soviet Union trying to reclaim, reclaim their own by having their own store, by having a department store dedicated to specific clothes you could only get in the East. And aside from, I've given you sort of a good overview of fashion retail of the GDR in 1962, magazines at that point pretty much just stayed in their lane. Um, Pramo or Praktische Mode continued to show patterns and they continued with this idea of DIY, you know, self-made pieces that were always, they always had to be pretty, functional, and easily combinable because naturally these were for the Werktätige Frau. And at Sibylla, this is, this is kind of a big year because you had Arno Fischer's, it took, Arno Fischer finally had his first shoot ever that premiered and that was called Herbst Mode Berlin and that was really what um, culminated or what, what kicked off this idea of using the streetscape and not using these beautiful palatial museums and palaces as backdrops or rather the streets of east berlin and this is where he featured all of the fall fashions of easter of east germany and under the backdrop of east berlin city streets and the following issue of that um after the fall fashion issue was called premiere and this took an yet another editorial direction that we'll go into. So Premiere or Premiere was celebrating fashion in the theater. And here you really see a dynamic staging of beautiful lighting, clothes, and a wonderful backdrop all together. But again, fashion isn't at the center point. It's just, a, it's just another point within 
the entire editorial. In 1963, Zibilla rolls out an article called Junge Leute, or Young People, and this was really to spotlight a storied fascination of adolescents, teenagers, and younger people, which was almost, I guess, in reaction to the West German magazine Twen, Twen, and they had the same story running. But of course, they didn't want to imitate, but imitate this West German fashion magazine, this West German article. They wanted to focus on their own specific take on what Junge Leute was. Now, in Zibilla's article, they featured a crane, a young woman. She was a crane operator and she featured her at work, but they also featured her in her leisure time in preparing for a cocktail party she was hosting with her friends. So this is a really emancipated look at a young woman as a crane operator. And here she is in East Germany working, living and and thriving. And and I think that's really a great way to encapsulate what they were trying to express and express about their state. At the same time, you had that same issue, that same month, I believe, uh, Pramor Praktische Mode had one of their all-time favorite patterns. And it was called, um, it was actually called Kleiner Schnuppkurs or a little, a little sewing course. And this was a sewing, this was a featured a pattern and it featured a black and white, a black skirt with a white blouse. And this was for a New Year's Eve party, um, much like Chanel's suit, which is something interesting you'll find in a lot of Eastern European and East German fashion is that while they're wildly against a lot of the, you know, West German elements of, of, of the fashion, the bourgeoisie, one that they do hold on to is Chanel's notion of practicality and versatility in this effortless elegance. And in this, in this source, which was Fashion East, they, they specifically comment about how this really did mirror Chanel's little suit. So it's interesting how they appropriate West German fashion and elements into their own and create it for a more egalitarian, proletarian, socialist aesthetic and voice. In 1964, of course, um, it's it goes without saying. You know, we do have to mention some elements of Western, of um, West West European fashion, and you have Courage. He introduces his space age look, which really coined his futuristic collection, replete with short A-line skirts, sweaters, slim pants, and goggles and helmets inspired by astronauts. That same year, Mary Quant introduces her jumper dress, and she really, this is where she favors youth and popularity over elitism and refinement, with models walking down the, thin models walking down the runway, dancing and listening to the Beatles. Again, this is the beginning of the youth quake. And back in East Germany, uh, at the the issue of Zibilla called Via 1964, or Us 1964, sorry for that, Günther Rössler, um, who really took on this edition. And this was really supposed to show a variety and a change in Zibilla in its direction and its creativity. 
And from travel reporting to staging, sh- uh, st- staging studio shoots with an almost painterly quality, the issue really showcased its boundless talent, but also how versatile the content of Zabilla was and how it was really much more spirited. And I'd like to note that 1964 was sort of the end of this this renaissance that Zabilla had had experienced with a very talented team of artists, photographers, and graphic designers trying out new things, still staying in line to a, a very East German or socialist code. But 1964 was sort of the end of that, and we'll see in later years to come that because of political situa- the political situation they had suffered and a lot of their talents and potential had been compromised. 1965, at this time in West Haute Couture, uh, the, the miniskirt is, reaches an all-time, not, an all-time high. You have you know, exposed knees and separates, and it seems that every year hemlines start to become shorter and shorter. And Twiggy becomes a, you know, the epicenter, the new icon for fashion in, in Paris. And Paris continues to experiment with geometric patterns and dresses out of plastic, PVC, or other synthetics. So at Zabilla, you also have another another major player. His name's Axel Bertram, and he he changes the design based off of Peter Knapp from L. Again, Peter Knapp was Doro Teamelis's favorite editor. And this is where the traditional typography is replaced by a very type, a typeface and design. And I can give you the specifics for all you typeface and design nerds. I can give you the specifics of that in the blog post. And generally, as I'd mentioned before, between 62 and 65, the, ma- the magazine was really coming closer to its goals, especially with the more united team. But after 65, this all seems to fade because of the domestic political climate. And there's really a huge push for moderniz- modernization and great, great hopes thereof, but that never materialized. And you'll also start to see, or you'll continue to see a lot of state-driven programs expressed through fashion editorials. One in particular, really fascinating, um, it was an article called Industrie Bitterfeld, and this was to show the industry city featuring models in, you know, more of the durable fabrics. And now this is this is also a part of, at that point in 1965, the GDR had a huge investment in a bigger, stronger, more successful chemical program. And Bitterfeld is known for its being a chemical plant and its, its chemical program or focusing on that. And it was also, in the end, very environmentally destruct- destructive. But it's interesting that that made its it, industry, Bitterfeld, made its own editorial out of a state-driven program. And again, I can feature the image to that article in the blog. Now, at this time, while Zabilla it was, is spinning stories, creating content, and creating a, a world in which the modern socialist woman could could live. You also had other magazines of the time, and you had uh, Für Dich, and 
that or for you is what it's called in German. And one of the one of the articles features a complaint from one of its readers that says, quote, why doesn't one forbid magazines to publish to publicize such fashionable dresses? Because published patterns became an issue. Um, a lot of the patterns that you would see in Pommel or in a lot of these other magazines wouldn't be appropriate, wouldn't, wouldn't be available, and they, you know, you would lack the appropriate material for them. And that's just in general something that we will see in the late, later half of the 60s in East Germany is that a lot of women, and it says, and there was a statistic that says a lot of women with higher than average incomes would start to make their own clothes. You really had to rely on on your sewing skills if you wanted to be on trend or somewhat trendy within, you know, the East German rubric of trends. And that's pretty much it for today. Uh, join me on Friday for Got a Hot Minute, which is my five-minute bonus episode where I'll be reviewing the book Sibylle Zeitschrift für Mode und Kultur, or Sibylle, the magazine for fashion, uh, for fashion of art and culture, 1956 to 1966, uh, 1990, sorry. And it's really a beautiful book with fabulous images. I would highly recommend purchasing it, even if you don't read German, because there's not that much German to read, but I'd be happy to translate it. However, I would I would highly recommend it if you really if you're a visual person and if you want to understand understand the visual culture that was that was being expressed or that that was being projected in East Germany. And that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining me and I will see you on Friday and then I will see you again on next Tuesday where we'll be discussing the second half of fashion in the 60s in the GDR. Thank you.